Good afternoon. I'm Franklin, and you're listening to the Berkeley Grok Science Show. That's right. It's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. I'm Charles Lee. Coming up on today's show, glowing plants, cancer mice, and milky diets. In addition, we'll be joined by Mr. Joe Papalardo, who will discuss the life cycle of stars. Also, we'll find out what an impulse is. So stay tuned for all this, plus the Grokatron 5000 and the world-famous question of the week coming right up here on the Berkeley Grok Science Show. Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. How you doing, Frank? I feel like I've just seen a James Bond movie. <laughs> you know, they're good movies, right? Yeah. If I had a choice between watching a James Bond movie and watching science, actually, I'd choose science. Okay? <laughs> <laughs> so have you seen GoldenEye? I was not that impressed with it, but... <laughs> actually, me neither. How about The Golden Cage? <laughs> that usually is kind of kinky. I have to pay to be in The Golden Cage. <laughs> so scientists have actually discovered several golden cages. These are actually analogous to uh, the buckyballs that they have with carbon, the 60 carbon cages. But these are actually clusters of between, say, 14 and 20 gold atoms. Arranged in sort of a spherical or... Yeah, um, a cage-like structure. Right. Uh, actually, the one at 13 atoms tend to be planar, where 20 and greater tend to be pyramidal. Uh-huh. But the ones 14 through 19 atoms, those clusters tend to form hollow cages. So a team led by uh, Lai Sheng Wang at Washington State University uh, vaporized these gold atoms. In a gaseous phase, these atoms form these cages of between 14 and 19 atoms, and... Using spectroscopy, they were able to identify uh, their structure. Oh, so was this GC mass spec? or It was photoelectron spectroscopy, so based on the light that's given off of it. Oh, really? Oh, that's interesting. Okay. Are these sort of the first type of forays into the structure of these type of molecules? Is that what's so cool about it? At least for gold. I'm I'm sure this means, well, I think they've probably identified other metal-type cages as well. But this is the first time they found it with gold. Okay, wow. So this is just that it's probably, these type of structures are probably very common throughout all the type of metallic compounds. Probably. Yeah. Well, okay. I mean, so uh, nanotype applications are soon to follow, I imagine. Maybe cosmetics. <laughs> <laughs> Oddly enough. So anyways, this is actually in our very favorite journal. No, it's not. <laughs> yes. How can it possibly be? ENAS. Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. So if you're like an evil villain like Goldfinger, right, you could take those gold nanoparticles and just inject it into your victims, turn them into gold. Molecular transformation, huh? (laughs) Yeah, well, (laughs) oddly enough, that's what they're trying to do with cancer. Turn cancer into gold? (laughs) (laughs) Or at least turn immune cells into something like gold. Some of us mining for it, huh? It was sort of struck like gold. A group of researchers at Wake Forest University about seven years ago discovered a particular mouse that was resistant to cancer cells that were injected into it. Can you also fly? <laughs> it is a super mouse, but a alas, mighty mouse. Actually, so they were wondering what was happening with this mouse, and what they discovered was its immune cells, what are called the primary immune response, or the natural immune response. These are cells that attack invaders once they come into the body. Mm-hmm. Those seem to immediately attack cancer cells. Hmm. And what they found then was if they actually took those primary immune cells and transferred them to other animals, right. those animals also acquired the same type of immunity to cancer. Wow. Right. Did it try to transfer it to humans yet? (laughs) That, of course, is somewhat down the line. And one researcher and immunologist, Nora Deces of University of Washington in Seattle, says that's super premature to be thinking about that. (laughs) You know, I'm always selfishly thinking for the human race. I'm all for improving the mouse population because Lord knows we don't have enough of them, right? (laughs) Of course. So it's very fascinating work. Oddly enough, they still don't know what the 
actual mechanisms are involved in why these immune cells mm -hmm. in this particular mouse line are so super combative for cancer, but mm -hmm. that's certainly more research that they need to do. Yes. For us. I'm happy for the mouse. <laughs> happy for the mouse, too. This was research that was published again in our favorite journal. No. It is. <laughs> the Proceedings. Of the National Academy. Of Sciences. So speaking of genetics, do you glow when you get dehydrated? Glow, maybe not. Maybe <laughs> radiate some small uh, emission, perhaps. <laughs> I'm not sure what kind you're talking about. Yeah, don't probe. <laughs> so uh, some scientists in Singapore have modified these plants to include jellyfish genes that have a phosphorescent compound. So like the green fluorescent protein? Yes. Oh. And these plants have been programmed so that when they get dehydrated, they will start glowing. Hmm. This is a part of a way of designing a smarter farming systems <laughs> where you would selectively water the plants that need water when uh, they need it. I see. So you'd have a detector that would tell uh, when these things are glowing and then it would trigger the sprinklers to go on. Basically, you know, just automate the whole thing. Uh, okay. <laughs> another fascinating use of GFP. I remember when they made a transgenic monkey that glowed green. and the, Maybe somehow they can combine the two together so that the transgenic monkey will be trained to water the glowing green plants and then everything would be perfect. But maybe it'll become the Incredible Hulk or something. <laughs> you wouldn't like those plants when they're angry. This project actually got an award of students at the Singapore Polytechnic University. Now they're working on other ways to use these fluorescent proteins as indicators for uh, other stresses like heat or a nutritional deficiency. What about designing for humans so you can tell when the other person is attracted to you or something? That'd be cool. No. Uh, you mean the gaydar or something like that? Uh, well, I wasn't thinking of that, but that might be interesting. That could be rainbow colored. Oh, like, yes. I need like a stop or go signal, right? Oh, I'm just blind. <laughs> Uh, anyways, if anyone wants to read more, there's a very nice article in March 27th issue of Chemical Engineering. Oh, well, and another article that's not from PNAS, unfortunately, <laughs> but perhaps something related. It's from the Journal of Reproductive Medicine. Turns out milk might increase your uh, chance of having twins. So does milk have some toxins or something that interfere in the cellular division? It apparently promotes what's called an insulin-like growth factor in women. Okay. And this protein is thought to, to promote perhaps the release of eggs in the ovaries so that two or more could possibly be fertilized at the same huh. time. Uh-huh. Pretty much it's really a population epidemiological type study where he looked at birth records for a number of women and just was actually comparing diets of, say, vegans and right. found that there actually seemed to be a correlation with those who had dairy products in their diet with their chance of having a twin. So could it possibly be that it's perhaps the antibiotics or some of these uh, steroids they use? Right. It's certainly probably due to the increase in hormones that have been used uh, in producing milk. That's the suggestion anyway. Right. So hard to say otherwise because most of the milk you get nowadays is hormoned up. Yeah, unless it's from Berkeley Farms or something like that. <laughs> right. But indeed, fascinating work, and if you want twins, perhaps that's a good thing, but the, <laughs> the point being that the risk in, during pregnancy is actually goes up if you're uh -huh. going to have twins. So. Uh -huh. so again, very fascinating work. It was led by Gary Steinman of the Long Island Jewish Medical Center in New Hyde Park, New York, and again published in the Journal of Reproductive Medicine. And that's all for a look at recent developments in the world of science and technology. You're listening to the Berkeley Grok Science Show. Well, coming up next, Mr. Joe Papalardo will join us to discuss the life of stars. So stay tuned.
All right, welcome back to the Grok Science Show. Well, as the saying goes, all stars fade away, and our sun is no exception. Some five billion years from now, the sun's life cycle will end, leaving behind a white dwarf star. But what are the physical mechanisms behind the evolution of the stellar life cycle? Well, joining us today on the Grok Science Show to discuss some of the issues is Mr. Joe Papalardo. Mr. Papalardo is an associate editor of Air and Space Magazine, and he joins us today to discuss the life of stars. Uh, Mr. Papalardo, thank you very much for joining us today. On- well, thanks for having me, Charles. Appreciate it. Uh, well, it's certainly our pleasure to have you on the program. And you're, uh, you're from Air and Space Magazine, and I'm sure a lot of people know about the publication, but I was wondering if you could actually talk a little bit about the magazine. Yeah, certainly. We're affiliated with the National Air and Space Museum here in Washington, D.C. We cover all manner of aviation and space history. If it flies, we care about it, and we do a lot of history and the history of science. So it's a pretty good match for your show. It certainly is, and, and you certainly covered issues that are of interest to scientists anyway, but especially with the, uh, the life cycle of stars. But I guess a lot of people know that the sun eventually is going to burn out, but they might not know exactly why. Yeah, it's sort of the cosmic bummer of, of our neighborhood in the cosmos. All stars, including our, our own sun, fit the definition of life that is set up by a lot of exobiologists and astrobiologists. They're, they're born in, typically in spiral arms of galaxies, metabolize chemically, have life stages, and, and then they die. In the case of our sun, it's about halfway through its life cycle. It's considered a low-mass star, so it's not big enough to supernova when it dies, but when the sun exhausts its supply of hydrogen uh, in the core, where it gets converted to helium, there's no longer any source of heat to support the core against gravity. So what happens is the core of the star collapses under that gravity, and the outer envelope expands, Mm. and that's when things get bad in, in our solar system. So does the outer envelope expand because the gravity can no longer hold on to that gas, expanding outward? Yes, that's basically the the thing that runs the sun is the conversion of hydrogen to helium at Mm -hmm. the core. There's a lot of hydrogen that is not available at the core, unfortunately. It's not really optimized to mix all of it. In fact, when it dies, it'll only have about, they estimate about 12% of the sun's hydrogen will be converted to helium, which gives a good opportunity to extend the life of the sun if we could figure out how. But when it expands, that's what goes into the red giant phase. The atmosphere doesn't have any way of staying close to the core, so it actually expands so much it'll envelop the Earth. By then, we will all be dead because it'll get too luminous and too hot to sustain life anymore. But we'll probably circle inside of the star itself for a couple of thousand years before we finally get absorbed. Oh, well. So hopefully we've moved off the planet by then. Yeah, well, we're going to have to go pretty far because uh, by some people's calculation, that envelope can go out as far as Jupiter. So oh, wow. if we're going to hit the road, we better be prepared to go pretty far. All right. Well, maybe Pluto or the 10th uh, the planet there. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> okay, so but at that point then, doesn't the sun start to burn? alternate sources of fuel fusing uh, other nuclei. The, the carbon in the sun's core will start to burn also. Mm. And again, that's when it enters the red giant phase. And that's the phase that a lot of, um, that a lot of few researchers are, are <laughs> trying to dedicate a little bit of research on how to prolong the life so that it doesn't go into that red giant phase. Uh, so what happens then after the, uh, the red giant phase? After the red giant phase, the sun will ultimately end up as a, as a white dwarf. Either that envelope I was talking about will either contract back into the core or it will just keep going out and the core will no longer be able to hold on to it and it'll end up as a white dwarf star, which generally speaking are pretty hot and very dim and will just be another lifeless dot in the sky of some other planet. Uh, burned out cinder, I guess. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> so we know Earth will certainly get enveloped. What about the other planets? How will they be affected? 
Each one of them will be affected by the loss of the sun. Their orbits will be completely thrown off. Um, There's not a lot of talk about the effect on on other planets just because it's, it's, it's so radical of an idea and no one really funds these studies because there's very few practical applications right. of them. There are a lot of star models that are built describing this process because they're, they're useful in f- deep space observations. And the other planets, it's, each one of them will, will react a little bit differently, but it's not going to be good for, for any one of them. It'll be calamitous for, for each and every one. When they get thrown out of their orbits, they could spin off and, and cross into other solar systems. They could collide with each other and other things. They could, a lot of at times, these, these kind of wanderers go through other orbits uh, of other solar systems and will wreak absolute havoc um, all over this galaxy. So it's the thing that holds our solar system together. The reason they call it the solar system is because we're all spin around the same thing. When you take yeah. that out of the equation, it's... Uh, all bets are off. <laughs> uh, do we have a better idea from studying uh, other sorts of stars of the same magnitude in, in other parts? Well, we do. The, the problem is there's no one that is alive that could possibly follow a single star through its life cycle. Right. So it's very hard for scientists to determine if one is, you know, quote-unquote, young versus old. Mm-hmm. What they do is build these star models and compare them with the luminosity and the, and the heat, which are tied together, of other stars, and, and compare it to our own or, or, or each other, and then compare it to the model that they build. Of course, there are exceptions all over the place that befuddle people. There's a observations of a, of a lot of distant stars actually show that some are aging more slowly than they should. Hmm. A, a lot of people think that's because the rate of spin is fast enough to mix the chemicals and the, and the chemical reactions that, that you find at the core of these stars. It mixes it a lot more efficiently than, for example, our, our sun would. You know, you talk to some researchers sort of on the fringe and they say, well, that's a good way of trying to figure out if those stars are being tampered, if there's some sort of extra or other kind of life form that's messing with them and trying to make them more efficient. There's other theories say that, you know, hydrogen-rich binary stars will merge and that will throw off the H cycle. So we know very little, actually, Mm. when it comes down to it. And it really comes back down to computer modeling and just trying to observe things in the sky. I see. So how old is the sun right now and how do we sort of arrive at that age? We're halfway through. We're five billion years in and about five billion to go, as is. And we compare that with other stars and the basic age of the solar system and and the other planets that that we share it with. And the number actually, well, we're talking about billions of years, a billion years here and there. It's sort of like Pentagon accounting. (laughs) You know, a billion here, a billion there, all of a sudden you're starting to talk about a large time frame. People don't know how long it's going to last. They can only conjecture, and, and it all depends on the models that they build. And by comparing the sun's activity with other stars, that they have come up with the approximate age. But it's kind of a gray area in, in a lot of ways, and dating things in the solar system tends to get kind of tricky. But the five billion years left to go is a pretty good uh, indicator. So at least we have a timeline here. <laughs> we, have, we have a ballpark. Okay. We, have a ballpark. We, we have plenty of time before the Earth and everything we know is destroyed. I, I suppose that's the good news. All right. Well, hopefully we've invented interstellar travel by that point. Um, well, you know, you could always take the easier route and fix the neighborhood that we're in and try and extend the life of the sun, which in my article I talk about a couple of researchers who have crunched some numbers and used those stellar models to try to devise a way to, to at least double the life of our sun, which will buy us, you know, five billion years, which is not bad. Uh, it's kind of a complicated scheme, of course, but it would entail ringing the sun with a bunch of particle accelerators and creating two iron currents around the equator of the sun, uh, which develops a, a magnetic field that will draw some of the 
electrically charged atoms from the sun's atmosphere up to the poles, at which point you'd have to heat up the sun, <laughs> odd as that sounds. You'd have to use some sort of a microwave or a particle beam or something to heat up the, those atoms so that they'd have enough energy to actually eject from the poles. Doing that would decrease the mass of the sun, improve the mix of uh, hydrogen to helium at the core, and all of a sudden you've got the sun in overhead for a couple billion more years. Wow, okay. So maybe there's a little added hope there. <laughs> well, they don't, don't get too quick because it gets kind of tricky. When the hydrogen and the stars fully, fully mix, there's a, a researcher who ran a bunch of the, these models through it when he found that the, the red giant phase is held in check, but the sun will become more luminous and hotter, mm. uh, enough so that it would probably boil the world's oceans off. Okay. So what you need to do is be very careful to compensate for the mass loss rate versus the, the rise in luminosity. Otherwise, if you, I mean, if you forget to carry the one in this <laughs> in this equation, you could destroy the whole world. Oh, wow. Well, I guess we have five billion years to figure it out, I guess is the... Time's on our side on this one. Time is at least on our side, but uh, let's not wait till the last minute, I suppose. <laughs> uh, right. Uh, to me, it's better to have a plan. <laughs> right. <laughs> okay, so sort of a final word here. You know, this is, again, something that, as we mentioned, five billion years in the future. Why is this something that people at least should be interested in? When I talk to the researchers, the mm-hmm. there's there's two David Criswell who who invented a, the, the theory of of how you could mine a star, or it's called star lifting. Also, mm-hmm. you could get raw materials from stars and plug into fusion reactors or, and whatnot. It's just a way of utilizing the resources in our in our universe. So that's sort of a useful, actual beneficial use that you can come up with. The other reason why would be just pure intellectual exercise. Mm-hmm. You talk to the researchers that actually bother to do these things, and they all have side gigs. They're <laughs> investigating Martian rocks. They're, they're trying to lobby for solar panels on the moon, all these other things. But the more you learn about these star models, the more you learn about stars, the, the more you push those limits. Mm-hmm. You just let your mind off the, the shackles, and, and all of a sudden you, you might find that you learn something or you understand something more, or it just captures people's attention, and like this show. And all of a sudden people might think about the life cycle stars or, or how you can determine the age of stars and things like this. And it just generates interest. It's a strange one. I, I recommend uh, breaking it out at your local pub and seeing what the reaction is. <laughs> or a few pints. Might get a beer in the... <laughs> oh, I, it, people have bought me drinks cause just cause from pure relief of knowing that everything that we've seen, everything, it doesn't necessarily have to end in five billion years. Uh, well, perfect. I, I was getting a little worried there. <laughs> <laughs> well, if you're of a paranoid mindset like I am, you always you always feel better with a backup plan. Indeed, indeed. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, Mr. Pappalard, I do want to thank you very much for talking about the life cycle of stars here. Oh, well, it was my pleasure. And you were just listening to Mr. Joe Papalardo discussing the life cycle of stars. This is the Berkeley Grok Science Show you're listening to. Well, coming up next is the Grokatron 5000 and the world-famous Question of the Week. So stay tuned.
back and we're ready to play our game, the Grokatron 5000. Again, it's our supercomputer, which was formerly known as Deep Blue. And today, the Grokatron 5000 has chosen the topic Stellar Life Cycles. So for the following five celebrities, if they were a star in outer space, what kind of star would they be? That is what the Grokatron 5000 would like to know. And uh, Mr. Popolardo, are you ready to play our game? Okay. Okay, here we go. What kind of star would he be? Person number one, Dr. Phil. Dr. Phil? Mm-hmm. I believe he would be a white dwarf, just because it fits so well. I, I think the fact that he has no hair, <laughs> it, it, when I think of, of the white dwarf, and they're so small and they don't really add that much to, to the solar system, I, I think that pretty much is, uh, I think that's, that's Phil. So sort of at the end of his useful life cycle, I guess, then, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, we should, we should all hope that he's at the end of his life cycle. <laughs> okay. Uh, number two, Britney Spears. Britney Spears. It's hard to say. She she may be a star in her supernova phase mm. just because if her career is ending in this large bang, it seems to, to fit there. I think uh, her talent really can't sustain it. She was big enough. A supernova, you'd have to be at least, uh, I think, 20 times larger than our sun. And she's a star of that magnitude. But I think she's blowing up, and I think it happened very quickly. I have to go with that. Paparazzi pictures at least seem to show a, a blow up there. Uh, yeah, yeah. That's the other thing. I, yeah. I think her dimensions are certainly going supernova. <laughs> Indeed. Uh, okay, number three, John Glenn. John Glenn. Red giant, maybe. Red giant. Okay. Maybe, maybe, maybe a red giant. He certainly sort of is a is a titan in the field. He's sort of on it, on his way out. But I I think he's got a couple of uh, tricks left up uh, up in his sleeve, especially as uh, NASA starts mulling over and going through the first initial steps of getting back to the moon. Right. So uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna give him the red giant. He might be the first centurion on the moon. Who knows? <laughs> I, you know, I'm not gonna rule anything out with that guy. He surprised me before. Right. Uh, okay. Uh, number four, the celebrity entity known as Tomcat. Tomcat, <laughs> the, the the brand new one. Yeah, <laughs> binary binary star. Uh, bi- I think I think definitely a binary star, and I think the the, the Tom Kitten I guess they're calling her. Right. <laughs> it's too early to tell in the cosmic life cycle, but uh, those two of them are going to spin together for as long as they can sustain. <laughs> Which I think in Hollywood time isn't very long, but... <laughs> well, yeah, it's certainly not the cosmic time frame. Right. <laughs> okay, and uh, finally, number five, Senator from New York, Hillary Clinton. Hillary Clinton. Hmm, I guess I used Red Giant already, so... There's something called a, uh, a pistol star, which is as big as the Earth's orbit. Okay. I think just from the ego, not just of her, but most of the people here uh, up on the hill in D.C., on Capitol Hill, I think most of them conceive of themselves as pistol stars. Uh, those can be very massive. I, and I think she would probably like that. All right, fine, a pistol star for her. All right. Well, I guess uh, in interest of fairness to both sides of the political spectrum, uh, number six then, George Bush. Well, you know, there's some stars that are out there that the light hasn't, we haven't even discovered yet. <laughs> and when you look back historically, you'll, you'll be able to judge. I think <laughs> from the, I'm going to use my discretion and, and, and choose that one. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do the cop out. Right. Um, I know black hole's still out there, but <laughs> okay. it's not necessary. It's the, 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 the vote's not in. I think the historians will have the final say. Okay. Well, we'll see if any light was actually emitted from the star. <laughs> well, you know, on the, on the back end of the black hole, there, a, lot of, uh, a lot of weird stuff is ejected. So <laughs> okay. I think, you know what? I, I'm going to revise it. I'm going to go with the black hole because they're, they're, they're not all good. They're not all bad. They're... They're just a, a fact of life you have to live with. Okay. <laughs> Mr. Poplard, I do want to thank you again for sticking around and playing our game like Rocketron 5000. Those Charles, it's my pleasure, honestly. You call me whenever you want. All right, well, thank you very much for your time. All right, take care now. Okay, bye. Bye. 
Okay, and Busui here with the answer to last week's question of the week. What is an impulse? Impulse of a force is the force times the time, and it's also known as the change in the momentum, and that is the impulse. Yo yo yo! What's up? What's up? What's up? It's the lyrical gangster here, man. And I'm dope, but I'm not as dope as the P dope in action, man. You know what it is? You'll be hyping it here at groxandhotmail.com. You're not gonna win anything, but man, you're gonna be etching some style. And that's all for this week's edition of Berkeley Grox. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us here at Berkeley Grox, you can email us at grox at hotmail.com. For Berkeley Grox, I'm Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.grox.net. Have a great afternoon and stay tuned for more music.